And God's word says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. I want to start today's time with a message, a message about family, a message about kingdom a message about coming together for the work of Christ. And I'd like to ask this question and hopefully answer it by the end of tonight. And the question is this, what does it look like to be a part of a spirit-driven, Christ-centered church? What does it look like to be a part of a spirit-driven, Christ-centered church? That's the question we want to answer tonight. So when you go to the doctor, usually the first person you see is a nurse. The nurse comes in, right? And they ask you questions about your activity level, your diet, they check your blood pressure, they check your pulse, your breathing, and they, and they check your temperature, they check your vital signs. And so tonight, I'd like to take some time to check our own vital signs individually and as a church by asking a few questions. So I want you to answer these questions in your own mind on a scale of 1 to 10. You don't have to share the results. This is between you and Christ right now. So 10 being yes, that is totally 100% me all the time, and one being no, that's rarely ever me at all. So we've got five questions. I want you to listen to these closely and score yourself. Question one, I prioritize time to read God's word and seek to hear him speak to me through it every day in order that I might experience gospel transformation in my life and in the lives of those around me. Just think about that. Give yourself a score. Try to be honest. People who don't want to be honest usually give themselves like a six. So, you know. Question number two. I eagerly desire and actively look for opportunities to be around my brothers and sisters in Christ. To build them up in their faith through gospel conversations and to participate in gospel community. Score yourselves. Question number three, I practice gospel generosity, sacrificial giving towards the people of God and those outside the church, especially when I see a need or lack of provision. Question number four, I prioritize time to be alone with God speaking to him about my burdens and the burdens of others, coming to know his heart by practicing gospel transparency with him and with others. Lastly, question number five. I seek to make the gospel of Jesus known to those around me by what I say and by what I do so that God's family would experience gospel multiplication and collaboration. And for those of you initiated in Convergent Church, yes, those are the eight values of our church. 
In our text today, we see four vital signs of a healthy, active, spirit-driven, Christ-centered church. I'm going to give them to you ahead of time so you know where we're going. First vital sign, spiritual sustenance. Second vital sign, compassionate camaraderie. Third vital sign, an awestruck adoration. Last vital sign, manifold missions. Let's look at verse 42. So the way we've broken up these today is we're kind of moving around this section. We're not working through a verse straight through because there's parts of verses that connect to these vital signs. So right now we're looking at verse 42. And Luke says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the prayers. When Christ established his church, which is, which is us, he set us up with a desire and a need for a steady diet. Christ's desire that his people would be sustained by his word and by his presence. And this practice of coming, as this early church did, these 3,000 new disciples of Christ, 3,000 members of Christ's family, they came together every day with the practice of listening to the apostles' teaching. And this was a continuation of Jewish rabbinical teaching. This was the way their culture discipled one another. Peter's sermon at Pentecost, which we looked at last week, was, a, was an exposition and an ex, uh, explanation of Psalm 16, which was a prophecy that pointed to Jesus, the coming of the Messiah, his resurrection. And we saw 3,000 people were generated by the Holy Spirit and brought into God's family. And now this huge church, which was once 120 people, now over 3,000 people is bursting at the seams, and they want to know more about this Messiah that they've come to trust in. They hunger to be fed. They want to know what it means that Christ is both Lord and Christ over their life. They have a desire to be sustained, so naturally they go to the place where they can understand in a deeper way what these things mean. They go to the apostles and they devote themselves to their teaching. As God's people, he has placed in us a deep need to be fed by what only God can give us. And Jesus was right when he quoted Moses, when he said, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This burgeoning church came together to feast on God's word to be discipled, made into the image of Christ. When I was a kid, my mom used to tell me, eat your vegetables and you'll grow big and strong. And so me being the person who takes everything to the extreme, uh, day after day, almost religiously, I would come home and I devoured, absolutely devoured cans of Popeye spinach and green giant vegetables. Like I thought these things were gonna make me super strong and healthy. And to my defense, I was actually a, a pretty healthy child. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but cold canned spinach isn't the most appetizing food at times. It can be tough to chew, and, and, and it's not always enjoyable to taste. But after a while, I began to get used to it and even enjoy it. It became a great thing for me. I'd come home from school, I'd turn on Popeye, and I would eat my spinach. And it was no longer tasteless and bland to me. I began to appreciate the flavors and the textures that were in this weird little can, and I began to see the benefits. And I'd come home every day, 
religiously and eat my spinach. To the uninitiated, feasting on God's word can often feel a lot like eating canned spinach. The Bible is full of big words and hard to pronounce names, forgotten customs of ancient cultures. It can be hard to understand the flow of thought of the Bible, and at times, even when we come to understand it, it can be even harder to apply it to our lives. It can also take time as we come to feast on God's word for our proverbial palate to change. But the word tells us that the Holy Spirit leads us into truth, that he illuminates or broadens or brings God's word to life for us and helps us remember the things that God teaches. See, for those who come to feast on God's word, it can only seem like spinach for so long. Eventually, it begins to taste like filet mignon, or as my brother Dan says, fillet mignon. <laughs> there is nothing in all of the world that can fill a hungry and tired soul like the Word of God. And so we see this church devoted to a steady diet of God's Word given by the apostles. God promises throughout His Word, if we do this, if we devote ourselves to this Word as well, He will grow, He will strengthen, He will build, and He will establish us. But the apostles didn't just learn of Christ. Sorry, the disciples, these 3,000, did not just learn of Christ through teaching alone. As the scripture says, they also devoted themselves to prayer. And study of God's word and prayer really are two sides of the same coin. When Charles Spurgeon was asked this question, what's more important, reading God's word or prayer, he was reported to have answered with a question himself asking, what's more important, breathing in or breathing out? Breathing in or breathing out? God's word is the breathing in of the life of God. Breathing out is breathing out our burdens and our prayers to God. And we should consider devotion to God's word and prayer is an ongoing conversation between us and God that provides spiritual sustenance for our lives. God speaks to us in his word. We hear his voice through what he's written. He tells us through the Holy Spirit how he feels about us, his children of God. He tells us his promises towards us, his heart for us, and how we are to live in light of all he has taught. In turn, we thank him and praise him. We ask him for strength and forgiveness, and we confess that we trust his nature that we trust his heart, that we trust who he is, that he really says he is. See, these two things, hearing from God in his word and speaking to God through prayer sustains all of Christian life. Hearing God's voice through his word and beholding his promises fills us with strength and grace that we might face today. And as sons and daughters of God, knowing that we're heard by our father and that our prayers will be answered by our father fills us with hope for tomorrow. These two spiritual disciplines are the guide rails for every Christian walk. And we see that the early church made them a high priority. And because of this, they were supernaturally sustained. So I want to ask you a question. How is your spiritual sustenance? Would you say that you live on bread alone or physical sustenance of the world? Or are you also sustained by God's supernatural sustenance, given by his spirit through word and prayer. 
If you are struggling in this area, if you're struggling to come to God's word, to understand it, or to feast on God's word, I suggest the best thing that you is first, admit that to God through prayer. And understand that your father is not ashamed or appalled by you. You are his child. You can come to him with the same reverence and boldness of Christ. And so, so we need to move past whatever shame we might feel from not being in our Bibles and not, not reading God's word and not feasting on it. And understand that as a child of God, he hears you and he knows you. You're not alone. There's many of your brothers and sisters who feel the same way, and yet God wants to feed us with this supernatural sustenance. Secondly, I'd say pray for the hunger that you wish you had. And set aside a time each day so that God can fill you through his word. How many of you know when you're going to eat breakfast, when you're going to eat lunch, and when you're going to eat dinner? Most of us know. Our bodies are set to that schedule In the same way that our bodies hunger, our souls hunger for things that only God can give us. So set aside a time to eat, to feast on God's will, and to eat well. Because as a church, when we are all feasting on the same diet of good food from God's word, it will produce in us spiritual life signs like joy, peace, patience, goodness, self-control. We'll become the church who experiences this next vital sign of a spirit-led church, and that is compassionate camaraderie. Looking at verses 42 and 44 through 46, God's word says that the early church devoted themselves to fellowship and to the breaking of bread, so much so that all who believed were together And had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all. And as any had need, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Do you know what the word compassion means? The word compassion literally means to suffer with. And it's best described not only as sharing another person's pain or feeling another person's pain, which is empathy, but is best described by a compulsion to lift and alleviate that pain and suffering. The word camaraderie means a mutual trust and friendship among people who spend a lot of time together. Thus, we can describe this burgeoning church, this early church community, as a people of like-minded and like spirit, who were with one another and were for one another. It's a community of brothers and sisters, family united by a shared faith, brought into one body by Christ. If one suffered, all suffered. If one was rich, all were rich. What was lacking was made up by those who had much, and so everyone ate, everyone was warm at night, everyone belonged and everyone was cared for. And they united around this truth that rich or poor, able-bodied or lame, young or old, male or female, Jew or Greek, they had all been purchased by the same blood. And all had been welcomed to God's table. 
And as they broke bread with one another, they remembered a Savior who was broken for this family. The church shared a compassionate camaraderie. Justin Martyr, who was a first century historian and apologist and philosopher, he illustrates a typical Sunday morning in the early church. I want you guys to listen to this. This was a typical every Sunday morning in the early church, first century church. He said this, having ended our prayers, we salute one another with a kiss. That fights against my COVID sensibilities, right? (laughs) Having ended our prayers, we salute one another with a kiss. There is then brought to the president, who would be a pastor or an elder of the brethren, bread and a cup of wine mixed with water, and he takes them and he gives praise to God of the universe through the name of the Son and by the Holy Spirit, and he offers thanks that we are considered worthy to receive such things from God's hand. Then all the people express their assent by saying, Amen. Then those who are called deacons give us to partake in the bread and wine. And those, hear this, and those who are absent, absent from the body, the deacons take them their portion. For the apostles in their memoirs, the gospels composed by them delivered to us what was given to them, that Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he said, do this often in remembrance of me. This is my body and this is my blood. And afterwards, we continually remind each other of these things. This is still Justin speaking. And the wealthy among us help the needy, and we always keep together. They who are well-to-do give what each thinks fit, and what is collected is deposited with the president who cares for the orphans and the widows and those whose sickness or any other cause are in want. And those who are in bond or in prison And those sojourning among us are freed, if possible, and in a word, all who are in need are taken care of. My God, what a beautiful picture of sacrificial giving. It's said that this compassionate camaraderie, this community, was was so deep. The Spirit took it so deep that if there were people in the body who were starving... The rest of the body would would fast two or three days just to make sure that nobody went without food. My friends, my my brothers, my sisters, my, my spiritual mothers and fathers in this room, it is not possible to be united with Christ and to be absent from his body. You cannot be united with Christ and be absent from his family, absent from his bride. It's not possible to love the Lord on Sunday and forget his family throughout the week. Because Jesus and his church are a package deal. And if you're yoked to the gentle yoke of Christ, you will carry the burdens of his church. If you love Jesus... The love you have for him will radiate out to his blood-bought people. And sadly, we we live in a a fast-paced world. We're set on immediately gratifying what we want. We want what we want it now. My friends, we are addicts. And through our lack of right doctrine, our lack of prayer, 
and our lack of consideration for one another, we've traded spirit-driven, Christ-centered church for schedule-driven, self-centered church. My friends, if we desire to be a spirit-driven, Christ-centered church, we have to commit to making room in our lives for one another. We have to commit to making room for one another and one another's burdens, to be inconvenienced for one another and inconvenienced by one another, to build relationships and to build bridges and not walls, knowing that Jesus died for the people in these chairs. Did you know that in the same way that prayer or fasting or feasting on God's word are spiritual disciplines, did you know that fellowship, being with God's people is a discipline? It's not something we're naturally wired to do. It's something that we endeavor to do in order to get better at it and become more like Christ. Because to partake in a discipline is to be a disciple. And to be a disciple of someone is to actively desire to be formed in their image. And if you desire to be formed in the image of someone, that person is the object of your true worship. So to neglect God's people, to neglect fellowship, to, connect, to ne neglect to be with God's people in the way Christ is with his people is ultimately to worship self. But the beautiful thing, we see a different worship at work in this early community. We don't see a, a self-centered worship. We see awestruck adoration for God. And this is our third vital sign. In verse 43, and in verse 46, God's word says this, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. Do you know what happens when people in a church are legitimately known and loved? Do you know what happens when members of Christ's body teach one another right doctrine and commit to seeing that doctrine played out in the church? Do you know what happens when the people of the church know the love of the God of the Word and love the Word of God? My friends, God is pleased and God is praised. God is adored. In awe of Him falls on His people. These people begin to think, who are we? Who are we that God should love us like this as they taste the bread and the wine? They say, how great must our God be to be able to pour out these blessings from heaven? And they hear others saying, man, what a joy it is to belong and to be known by a people, all while smelling the aromas of home-cooked meals around dinner tables and embracing one another with brotherly affection. They experience the warmth of God's love through the touch of their fellow man. And God is pleased and God is praised and God shows his approval of his people by giving them a greater portion of himself. As he transforms his church into his own character and they look even more like him. Collectively, they magnify God through their actions towards one another. 
in their adoration. They make melody in their hearts to God, moved by passionate worship. And they build up one another's faith through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And their hearts sing with delight. They acknowledge God's work with reverence even as they experience His grace. This is what happens when we set ourselves on being sustained by God's Word and taking care of one another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, It is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed, and let's focus on that word, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brothers and sisters. My friends, what we have here is a privilege. It's not a right. It's a privilege granted to us by our maker, granted to us by Christ who brought us into this family. We have experienced God's grace in the lives, in the words, in the service as we one to another. The word for grace in the Greek language is charis. That's where we get our word charisma. The word charisma in Greek means endowment or gift. And it's used in the New Testament to denote the spiritual gifts poured out by the Spirit. In our verse, it says, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And while we may not see the more supernatural miracles like spontaneous healing of the sick or the blind or lame, or the gifts of tongues speaking in languages that are, that are, that are known yet unknown by us and, and the interpretation of those things, though we don't see those things, I, I, would, I would also say that we rarely see this kind of spirit-driven Christ-centered church shown in Acts alive in our nation. And I wonder if we do not see these gifts because we're not living in step with God's Spirit. I wonder if we don't see the depths of these spiritual blessings because we seem more intent on building churches that look like us instead of churches that look like Jesus. And while we may not see these miraculous gifts, I would ask this. Are the gifts of mercy, service, giving, teaching, leadership, evangelism, discernment, faith, and prophecy, all spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to this body, these things that keep us centered on Christ, are these not miraculous in and of themselves? It floors me that God would be so gracious to disperse these gifts throughout our body. And he gave them for a purpose. He gave them so that we could glorify God and express our adoration for him even as we build one another up in love and faith and good works. That God would be worshipped. That God would be adored. That in our heartfelt edification for one another, we would bless our maker. Jesus, when he was asked which of the law is most important? He said this, to love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. 
My friends, we cannot divorce our adoration of God from love and service to God's people. Lastly, we see in this church, in verses 47, a manifold missions. Verse 47 says, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Our final vital sign. We see in Luke's description of the early church that because of their devotion to God and their devotion for one another and their worship of their maker, (laughs) this early church had favor not only with God, but favor with people. We can define favor as demonstrated delight. This early church community was so Attractive to outsiders that people outside the faith were spending time with them and serving them even as they served one another. They wanted to be with them even as they wanted to be with one another. They wanted in on the love the church had for God and the love they had for one another. And as people came near to the church, they heard of the good news of Jesus, how he came to die for the sins of those separated from God. They would hear of his brutal crucifixion. They would hear of his miraculous resurrection. They would hear of his glorious ascension. And they would hear of his inevitable return. They would come to know that if they confessed of their sins and they repented and ran from their sins and trusted in Jesus as a sacrifice for their sins, they too could be a part of this love. They could be a part of God's family. They would see that what Jesus taught and what God taught and what the Holy Spirit was illuminating was alive in God's church. In a word, they would see Jesus alive in his people. Ultimately, they would encounter Christ alive in his church through the Spirit. This is what we might call relational evangelism. And and by no means is it the only way to evangelize, but it's a great way to evangelize. And through it, God added to his family day after day. I came to faith because a single man took interest in me. His name was David Knox, and the older I get, the more miraculous this very mundane man seems to be. He sat with me over breakfast for weeks on end, and we talked about Shakespeare and mythology. We talked philosophy, pretty much anything Greek. He opened up his home to me, and I I met his wife, and I met his friends, and I ate dinner at his home. And over time, I came to know the love of God, the love of my maker expressed through the hands and heart, words, and actions of David Knox. See, he didn't just preach the gospel to me. He didn't just tell me the truth of my sins. He didn't just tell me that Jesus came and died for me and that I could have access with God. And he absolutely did that, and he did it often. But through his hands, through his sacrifice, through his love, through his giving, he showed me the restorative power of the gospel. He he practiced a balanced and manifold missional lifestyle. He lived with the words of Christ on his mouth, and the mission of Christ in his hands. And he told me over and over again, Jameson, God loved the world and Jesus died to prove it. So now most often churches take on an unbalanced 
form of evangelism. Sometimes churches weigh heavily towards truth, speaking the gospel and its implications, and they speak it verbally, and they speak it loudly, and they speak it often. And these churches speak with all the power and the zeal of Old Testament prophets, while at times neglecting the greatest of prophets, Jesus, who called us to also serve those around us through sacrificial giving and dying to ourselves to live humbly and quietly and have a wise and gentle disposition towards outsiders. But on the other hand, other churches can lean towards grace, which is an unbalanced approach to missional living that doesn't often speak the truth of the gospel or confront the reality that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory and need a mediator. These churches often have great outreach and attract many people, but honest confession of sin, true conversion, and gospel transformation are solely lacking. And and both these kinds of churches are made up of people, like-minded individuals who would prefer a particular way of living on mission. But here's the problem. To be a faithful disciple of Christ, to be a faithful witness of Christ, to be a kingdom witness, we live with both word and with deed. We must tell the world of the gospel. We must convict them of their sins. We must tell them to repent. But we must also show them what it means to be a disciple, which means we must bring them into our lives and go to where they are. We are to show the world what spirit-driven, Christ-centered church looks like. I would suggest a simple way to begin to apply a balanced, manifold witness is to learn the names of your neighbors. Do you know the names of your neighbors? I know two of my neighbors. I have people on my other side, and this is my 100% confession. They've lived there for two years, and I don't know their names. So I'm speaking to myself here, not just the church. But learn the names of your neighbors. Figure out their particular struggles and problems. Find tangible ways to serve them. Invite them home for dinner or bake them a pie. Invite their kids to a play date with your kids if you're a young family. And allow the Jesus that is in you to radiate radiate out towards them. And speak to them about your Savior when they see that you're different from other people around you. See, we we can't just stand. I want to be careful how I say this. We can't just stand and scream the gospel in people's faces without also being willing to sit down and have coffee and break bread and spend time with others. True evangelism is a giving of ourselves in our time. It's not just shouting, but it's also not devoid of the gospel. We must speak the truth of God's word. So as we close, I know you might be thinking that, man, Jameson, this sounds like a lot of work. This sounds like a lot of sacrifice, a lot of time, and I'll I'll be straight up with you. You're right. It is a lot of work. It's a lot of time and it's a lot of sacrifice. It takes a long time and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and inconvenience to build and be a part of a spirit-driven, Christ-centered church. 
It takes sustained effort, patience with ourselves, with our brothers and sisters, with our neighbors and with our city. It takes grit. And above all, it takes a deep dependence on the Lord to do what only He can do. It takes caring a lot less about getting our way and caring a lot more that King Jesus has His way. It means knowing God personally, slowing down to be inconvenienced by Him, showing up to serve, and not just on Sunday, but all the rest of the days of the week. It means looking forward to a day when God's kingdom looms larger in Owasso, and the reality of heaven coming to earth is more palpable among us. It means playing our part, checking our pulse, looking at our vital signs in our own lives, in the lives of others, and ultimately trusting that God will give us all that we need to be everything he calls us to be. So I invite you, brothers and sisters, to check your pulse, check your vital signs often, and do it together that God might build us into community that is glorifying to God and attractive to those who are far off. And so I invite you again to live together, to share one another's burdens, to counsel one another in our sins, to alleviate one another's fears, to provide for one another, to be there in the midst of failure. I invite you to celebrate together and to feast together, I invite you to laugh together, to learn together, to cry together, and ultimately, I invite all of us to die together. Because ultimately, Dan and I, we're not asking you to build a church. We're not asking you to grease the wheels of a machine. I'm asking you to build a people. I'm asking you to build a family one that looks like Jesus and is concerned for the coming of his kingdom. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for pictures of what you've called us to be. And Lord, forgive us for all the times we fall short. And Lord, we thank you most of all that you, Lord, are not condemning of us when we fail. That you, Lord, are not wrathful towards us when we fail. But, oh, Lord, you are gentle. And your heart is lowly. And you are full of love. Yet you discipline the son and daughter whom you love. Lord, I ask today that by the power of your spirit, Lord, and not not by the conviction of my words, Lord, but by the power of your spirit, I ask that you would discipline your people. Lord, I ask that you would make us fit for the mission. Lord, I ask that you would bring about in us everything that you will for us to be. And Lord, I ask you that you would give us patience with ourselves and with one another. Lord, I ask that you would help us to be devoted to you, to eat good food, to feast on your word, Lord, to speak to you in prayer, knowing that you listen and you answer. 
Lord, I ask that as you give us a heart for you, you would give us a heart for one another. Lord, that we would desire to be around each other. Lord, that we would be inconvenienced by one another. Lord, that we would be willing to let go of possessions that we don't ultimately need if it means our brothers have what they need, our sisters have what they need. Lord, help us to be a giving people. Lord, help us to be a people who adores you in word and deed. Oh Lord, let us not be a church that worships you with our mouths and yet our hearts are far from you. And Lord, in every way that we err, Lord, bring us back to true north. Guide us by your spirit that we would be a spirit-driven and Christ-centered church, that your name would be glorified. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.